Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And Rory, I think we should go half domestic, half overseas. Domestic, I think it'd be good to focus on standards in public life. I don't know if you managed to catch Michelle Moan yesterday on the BBC. Mesmerizing stuff. I'm, I'm actually, I'm talking to you from Utah. Yeah. But, but even here in Utah, we were able to catch up on that astonishing interview. Very good. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk also about the, the media in the light of the Prince Harry judgment and Piers Morgan's rather bizarre response to it. Um, and then I think second half, we should look at Mr. Orban and not far away from Mr. Orban, also look at President Vukic because we've just had the elections in, in Serbia. And of course, you know, in both those places, there is, you know, it's close to what's happening in Ukraine as well. So how does that sound? Sounds absolutely brilliant. And actually, I think you, you shared with me a lovely article from the FT on Orban, which, which had an, a winning line from Trump, where he said, there's a man Viktor Orban out there, one of the strongest leaders in the world, the leader of Turkey, which, which I think <laughs> reveals a great deal that somehow in Trump's mind, Turkey, Hungary all come together in the new strongman world that he's hoping is going to come to exist. <laughs> They're all the same. So listen, let's, let's, I'm glad you got to see the Michelle Moan um, interview. Before she'd even got to the bit where she admitted that she was a liar, Prince Andrew was already trending on Twitter. <laughs> can I can I just quickly uh, do a little explainer on Michelle yeah. Moan? Um, so Michelle Moan is an absolutely extraordinary figure. I mean, she's somebody again who came from an incredibly hard background. She grew up east side of Glasgow. She lost a brother to spina bifida at the age of eight. Her father lost his legs to cancer at fifteen. She left school with no GCSEs. She had a, a child as a teenager. But unlike the wonderful interview that we did on leading... That was with Angela Rayner. With Angela Rayner. Um, the story had a sort of slightly less happy ending. So in some ways, both of them came from very, very tough uh, backgrounds. But in Michelle Moan's case, what she then did with her life is to essentially build a business reputation partly out of celebrity TV shows. So she went on a version of I'm a Celebrity. She launched an underwear line. And she was an absolute brilliant publicist because she would deliberately hire as her models people who were going to be in the press anyway. And then she could use the photographs of them in her underwear, promote them. And her, her biggest coup on this was that she managed to sack Rod Stewart's partner, Penny Lancaster, who was her underwear model, and replace her with Rod Stewart's ex-wife, Rachel Hunter. Thus guaranteeing that every newspaper, in Britain at least, carried pictures of them in her underwear. She then went on to launch weight loss pills. Um, she claimed had had clinical trials, but there were no clinical trials. She later claimed she'd had responses from 60 people, but she lost those responses, so couldn't share them with anyone. She then uh, launched her own cryptocurrency. Uh, she tried to build a development in Dubai, funded by Bitcoin. Her cryptocurrency collapsed. And on the basis of this, David Cameron chose to put her into the House of Lords in 2015. Thereby further endearing David Cameron to you as a great statesman. Yeah. And so you might have thought on the basis of that track record, you might be a little bit worried about 
this particular businesswoman. But over to you then on the next stage of the saga. Well, I, I think it is, it's pretty remarkable. That I haven't seen David Cameron at any point brought into this story or asked about why he put her in the House of Lords. I mean, we, as you said, in relation to Angela Rayner, everybody loves a story where somebody comes from a poor background and makes something of themselves. But at the same time, that doesn't give you a free pass to bypass all the values of decent life. And what I found utterly mesmerizing about the interview is that both Michelle Moan and her, I've been struggling to find the right adjective, her husband, Doug Barrowman, but I'll have to keep working away on that one. But the two of them, utterly shameless, utterly shameless. Him sort of sitting there saying, well, I'm an entrepreneur and you know, I saw the opportunity. Her pretending she was doing out of some sort of commitment to public service. And then the very casual, you know, well, I phoned Michael Gove and they were, they were getting all peers and baronesses to sort of, you know, see what connections they had. Yeah, th- th- just quickly on that one, just, just for people who didn't watch it. Th- it's, it's one of the oddest things she says right at the very beginning of the interview. She says, yes, there was a call to arms to lords, baronesses, senior civil servants and MPs to help out. It's a completely extraordinary. She just sort of inserts the word baronesses as though somehow her title and this thing were all somehow connected in her brain. Yeah. And, and of course, what that led to was them having this business, P- Med, MedPro, PP, whatever it was called. And what Laura Koonsberg did quite cleverly through that, throughout the interview, she wasn't aggressive. Um, she wasn't unpleasant. She was asking them pretty straightforward questions and allowing them to tell the story. But in so doing, they dug themselves into so many holes. And the thing about this sort of basic moral decency and values, it's like she thought that the fact she could say, I only lied to the press, as somehow that is not the same as lying to somebody else. Because if you're lying to the press about the misuse of public money, you're lying to the public about money that you've taken from them. And yet right at the end, Laura Koonsberg's one sort of really softball question actually elicited one of the most interesting responses. She said at the end, what are your hopes for 2024? Which, you know, if I'd have been sitting there, I'd probably said, well, I hope I can get through this and I, I hope it doesn't go to a criminal case and I hope that I can start to rebuild my reputation, which I accept has taken a battering. Instead of which she just said, I don't see what the case against me is. <laughs> you can see Laura Kuzberg going, what? And again, sort of quick, quick, quick explainer on the case. So the government was desperate for personal protection equipment after COVID. There was a real shortage of things such as masks and gowns. And as Britain scrambled to try to get the stuff because we didn't manufacture it in Britain, there was a huge push for any companies who could get it in. And in the case of Michelle Moan, she manufactured garments in China and Asia. Or or the the company did. Yeah. Her underwear company manufactures in China and Asia. So she was saying because she manufactured bras, et cetera. Oh, I see. Okay. She knew knew that she could get the stuff made. And then- Having sent text to Michael Gove, the company's set up. But the first thing that's very striking about the company is the company isn't set up in her name or her husband's name. Instead, it's set up in the name of somebody called Anthony Page, who initially she claims that she has next to no contact with, but later turns out that he's very closely connected to them. He's the secretary to one of their companies, MGM Media. He basically runs her husband's family office. They then proceed to get 80 million pounds for 210 million face masks, which they deliver and which work. I mean, the face masks are valid. And then they delivered 
their £122 million contract on gowns, which were not used and the government has rejected as substandard and is suing, the government is suing them for £122 million. It's an extraordinary thing to be doing. Now, PPE MedPro maintain the gowns have been fit for purpose, but that is absolutely not what the government believes. And it then transpires not only that having told The Guardian that she's not connected in any way to this man, that she's personally recommended the company to Lord Agnew, she's been involved in the size of the garments, she's been lobbying for another company that she's involved in. And finally, The Guardian, through an extraordinary, and I'm sure it's not only The Guardian, so I apologize to the other journalists who were involved and we can put in the report, the other people who did some extraordinary work on this discovered an Isle of Man trust has received £29 million from this company, PPE MedPro, through a whole series of complicated offshore routes. So I think there are two big questions. One is the delivery of stuff that simply didn't work. But secondly, if she thought she was doing no wrong, and what this interview, as you say, keeps saying is, there we were sitting at home during lockdown like everyone else thinking, this is ridiculous. What can we do for Britain? They don't have any masks. We know how to do this get me on the phone, I'll deliver it as public duty. Why then set it up in the name of someone else who they claim to have no connection to, and then set up a series of roundabout routes to get £27 million into their own trust? I also, when her husband sort of casually dropped in those wonderful three words, Isle of Man, um, (laughs) it's never a good look when you basically say, well, we're running this all through the Isle of Man. And I've got nothing against the Isle of Man. I've got nothing against Manx people. However, I think that suggests that possibly they might just have a, a tad reluctance in terms of sort of, you know, shelling out loads of tax. And, and again, here, I'm going to get in trouble, but explain us for overseas listeners. The Isle of Man is one of the associated parts of the United Kingdom. There are other examples of these things, Jersey, Guernsey and others, which have a very, very complicated, long historical relationship with the United Kingdom. And that in some senses are part of the United Kingdom and other senses aren't in any way have an independent legal systems which have traditionally allowed them to benefit as good tax vehicles for people to place their money in. Very well put. Um, But I think, I guess the thing that links this to a lot of the stuff that we've seen in politics, not just in in the UK, but in different parts of the world, is this sense of impunity that people feel that if they're at a certain level in our social and political and economic structures, that the rules don't really apply to them. I mean, I think it's particularly the wealthy. I'm not even sure that it's, it's a question of her thinking she's on a I think it's about capitalism gone mad. Mm. I think this Mm. is the madness of modern wealth. I think they get to the stage of, I I almost think that they can't even really see that they're doing anything wrong. I mean, that's what's so chilling about it. That They sort of somehow simultaneously think they're saving the world. We sorted out the problem. We brought in the Mm. face masks. And by the way, we made 27 million pounds through an offshore tax efficient trust vehicle at the expense of the British taxpayer. But, and also the point on the trust um, the other reason she got into real difficulty both yesterday and I think will do as this uh, this this situation unfolds in the courts and so forth or in the legal process is that she also denied that she she would be a beneficiary from the trust and she kept saying she sat there with the husband saying it's not my money it's his not money and then <laughs> it's not my yacht it's his yacht even though the hot the yacht is named Lady M, and one of her many sort of glamorous self-promoting photos is of her standing there on Lady M. And the reason why I was particularly sort of disgusted and appalled by the whole thing is, as you know, I'm magistrate large at the New European, and a few weeks ago, she, her lawyers issued a writ against me, James Ball, and the editor of the New European 
because we had written this stuff about her in the paper and essentially saying to Rishi Sunak, never mind, stop the boats. It's about time you stopped this particular boat, the Lady M. And in came this letter with threats and demands that the paper be pulped and demands for an apology for things which have turned out yesterday live on te- or recorded on television to be true. So, Rory, just imagining a goal hanger lawyer on my shoulder, I might point out Michelle Moan and Doug Barrowman are subject to a long-running National Crime Agency investigation facing allegations of fraud and bribery, which they deny. Now, is this, is this a good moment to transition to something which is connected to that? So you're getting legal threats, investigative journalism is being done. In a way, this story is a story about good investigative journalism. And this is at the heart of one of the other issues you wanted to talk about today, which is the Levinson Report. And the Levinson Report, people remember, came out of these horrible phone hacking scandals where it turned out that various newspapers were employing private investigators to break into the telephones, or in other words, blag private information out of people to run endless tabloid stories. And it's come to the front recently because Prince Harry has been in the court, first royal to be appear in the court for over a century in a civil court against the Mirror Group. And one of the key things here has been about getting the balance right between the freedom of journalists to do sort of good Panama paper style investigations or this great investigation to trust on the one hand, and their impunity to do truly destructive, horrible, Mm. damaging personal attacks with no form of regulation on the other. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's happening here? Because this is something you understand deeply. And you testified to the High Court, am I right about? I did. I was a witness in in Harry's case against the Mirror. I was a bit confused as to why they called me, but having read the judgment, and honestly, it's very, very long, the judgment, but it's absolutely the most extraordinary, devastating critique of media culture and standards. Um, But the reason I think they wanted me to testify was because in a lot of the the, the invoices that were found for these private investigators that were being paid by the Mirror, there was one where he was being paid because he'd provided details of of my bank account and, and our mortgage. I think that's why I was there. It was simply to con- to to testify, and and it was co- complicated, isn't it? Because on the one hand you were a victim, on the other hand you used to work for the Mirror, right? Yeah, and and also I I have got a case myself against the Mirror. I've had a case again in the past against News International, which I won, and I've got a case now against the Mirror. I don't particularly want to damage the Mirror, and my big worry out of this, there are so many people now who are going to have a case against the Mirror. If you saw the full list of people who were targeted. It's very, very long. And I think the reason that my case was significant within the court is that it didn't lead to any stories being published. And in a way, what I think the judge was indicating is that that kind of doesn't matter. It was the fact that the law was broken to get the information. And so with Prince Harry, um, I think it was roughly half of the stories the judge concluded that they came through illegal means. Harry was awarded £146,000 in damages. The papers between them are already into over a billion in terms of legal costs and settlements. And, and this, this at the moment is sort of Murdoch Inc. and the, and the Mirror Group. It's uh, the two main ones, right? Exactly. But this is really interesting, I think. Harry's next target is the male. And just as Piers Morgan, there, there appeared to me to be quite a conflict between three things – his evidence to Leveson, which was under oath, what has emerged in the court case and the judgment in particular, and also Piers' rather unhinged response when in true Donald Trump style, he was lashing out against 
against the courts, against me, against anybody. And so, so, so next Harry goes to the, to the mail and, and, and his case with the mail has got other people involved. I think Elton John is one of them. And so th- this is not going to go away. And th- the thing that I rather admire about, about Prince Harry, and I don't know whether you know what his, <laughs> what his father and those close to him may think of this strategy, but I, Harry could easily have settled for a lot of money. But he, he decided, and it's clear from him and his legal team, he's going to get make sure these people get justice in some way. And take us back to the sort of beginnings of this. So this stuff was going on, as far as we know, definitely was going on in the 90s. And there was people were unlawfully tracked. They were blagged. They were hacked. They were spied on. These are all sort of different technical terms, aren't they? Can you give us examples of some of the sort of things that journalists were doing? And they were doing it generally with a cutoff, weren't they? There was a usually a private investigator doing it on their behalf. Is that right? I mean, a a lot of it was done through private investigators, and and that gave them this sort of deniability. So when Piers Morgan says that, you know, I didn't hack a phone, I didn't ask anybody to hack a phone, I noticed he wasn't speaking specifically to the judgment. The judgment was that he knew this was going on. And, and, and the way they got in was often people hadn't changed the passcodes on their voicemails. So they, were- they basically would guess that people were using default pin codes for their own voicemails. And then and blagging is something slightly differently. Blagging, and, and, and my case was, I think, a mixture of blagging and hacking. Um, the getting of my mortgage details, and this, this was at a time when, if you remember, Peter Mandelson got into difficulty because of his mortgage details. He was clearly a victim of this stuff as well. And so I think what happened was that the Mirror, having done this story on Peter Mandelson's mortgage, thought, yeah, and well, let me just sort of quickly give a reminder on Peter Mandelson. So yeah. Peter Mandelson turned out had got a loan from Jeffrey Robinson, who was a fellow Labour MP and was going to go on to, uh, go on to be uh, you know, a fellow minister. And this had not been, it seemed, properly declared or explained either to the leader's office or to parliament. And he had then resigned. And then 10 months later, he came back again. So the idea was that he'd resigned and he'd paid his penalty and come back. I guess it was the beginning of trying to clarify what people should declare and what they shouldn't. I've become aware since from gossip, it seems that quite a lot of MPs in the 90s were taking mortgages, which they weren't declaring from other wealthier MPs and that that was happening on the conservative side as well as the Labour side. I don't think the issue with Peter was was declaring it to, to Parliament. It was the fact that when he became president of the Board of Trade, there was an ongoing investigation into Geoffrey Robinson's business affairs, and it was felt that he should have declared that, that relationship. That's right. But I also think today in the modern rules, the Parliamentary Commission would expect you to I declare so. if somebody's yeah. lending you £400,000. Yeah. I mean, that's why I was horrified that Boris Johnson seemed to be able to get away with some undeclared guarantee of £800,000 without declaring it. I mean, I I don't think loans should be treated differently to cash gifts in terms of declaration. Anyway, enough of that. The point point was they were then hoping, presumably, that you were also doing something similar. So they were trying to get into your bank account. And I think they did that in the main through blagging. In other words, they were phoning up uh, or finding ways of getting into our building society, our banks, and talking to people to get all the details. And that would be through straightforward conmanship. And with that one, Alistair, I mean, in your case, you were innocent and that activity is illegal. But presumably somebody might say that there's more public interest in trying to work out whether the Downing Street Director of Communications is corrupt than there is in finding out whether Prince Harry is having a row with his girlfriend. Yeah. I, look, I think had they discovered that there was 
something untoward about my financial arrangements, then I think they could probably have mounted a, a public interest defence. But I think what was interesting about the judgment was he seemed to accept that this sort of industrial use of illegal activity was was wrong. And what's the other thing, of course, is that I thought it was absolutely fascinating. If you think how 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 keen most of our newspapers normally are to put Prince Harry and Meghan on the front pages. Not one single tabloid put the Harry mirror story on the front. Most of the broadsheets covered it well inside the paper, buried away. Uh, the Mail, for example, I noticed, they simply quoted Piers Morgan's statement in full. We <laughs> just said, Piers Morgan hit back, quoted the statement in full without any contextualization whatsoever. And of course, they're, they're, as I said to you, they're next in line. And I think for most people who've been the victim of this stuff, the mail is the paper that they feel is probably the most egregious. Whether they have broken the law to the extent that so far it's been revealed, the Mirror Group and News International have, I don't know. Um, but I think people will be very, very, very interested by what emerges in the in the case of Harry against the mail. And, and I, th I think the other thing that's as an outsider that's so shocking about this, is that this activity apparently didn't stop when the Information Commissioner exposed it no. in 2003, they kept doing it, didn't stop when a News of World journalist was arrested in 2006, didn't stop when the cover-up payments were made in 2009, and apparently seems to have continued even beyond the Leveson report in 2011. Absolutely. Even during Leveson, I'd be amazed if some of them, for example, weren't targeting the lawyers. In that case. Um, which then brings us to Leveson. So, so, so Brian Leveson is somebody that I, I knew and worked with quite closely when I was um, Justice Secretary. I, I'm a huge admirer of his. I mean, one of the, the brightest, most thoughtful senior judges. I mean, he mm. was, uh, I remember going to see him in his, um, I suppose, in the High Court in his sort of grand judicial chambers, surrounded by books. He gave me a very earnest book on sentencing policy. So I was always full of admiration for him. Um, but his stuff was not fully implemented. And there are two bits to it. There was a section two of the Levinson report, which was meant to be going forensically into the detail of what the newspapers were doing. And their corrupt relations with the police. And their corrupt relations with the police, which was dropped by that great figure, uh, Matt Hancock. On behalf of your great hero, Theresa May, let it be said. On behalf of Theresa May, that is true. And Theresa May's government, that is true. Yep. So um, my bad too, because I was yep. part of that government. And then there's been something called Section 40, hmm. which has been floating around. Um, so briefly, Alistair, I, I've just praised Sir Brian Levinson, but tell us a little bit about what the Levinson inquiry was and how it related to this hacking thing, in case people are confused. The stories about phone hacking have been going on for years, and both the media and the government kept insisting that it, you know, it, was, it was not extensive, it was the, the occasional rogue reporter, etc. The, the tipping point was when it was emerged that Millie Dowler, who was a murder victim, that they'd hacked her phone. And Alice, sort of remind us what it was that in the end made the Millie Dowler case so shocking. Well, it was the fact that, put it its most blunt, they were hacking the phone of a dead person. And as a result of some of the things that emerged from that, her parents actually thought she might still be alive. So the inquiry was into the ethics of the press. Uh, David Cameron said that as long as they weren't absolutely crazy, that they would implement the proposals. I gave evidence twice, both as a journalist and as a government employee. Um, I thought the report was actually very fair, very measured, very reasonable. It set out plans for 
um, a form of regulation, which was the idea that it was some great threat to the freedom of the press, utter nonsense. But of course, the press decided to attack it for all that they could. And, and rejects it astonishingly across the board. I mean, you know, people like The Guardian, for example, still steadfastly reject Article 40, which is Article 40 was uh, supposed to say that if you joined the, the regulator, yeah. the, the Leveson recommended regulator, then you yeah. would be protected from certain kinds of uh, legal case. So if a, I don't know, wealthy oligarch brought uh, a vicious libel case against you, you would be protected if you belonged to this independent regulator. If you didn't belong to the independent regulator, you wouldn't be protected. And actually, potentially, you might have to pay the costs even if it turned out that you had won. Correct. Section 40 is where the current political issue rests because Labour have been pretty clear that they've supported this proposal. And also, I've uh, been pretty clear that IPSO, which is the, the successor to the Press Complaints Commission, and which is completely a body of the media, by the media, fewer than 1% of cases get upheld. It takes six months to hear a complaint. It's an absolutely useless body, which is exactly what the press want. And Labour's always been clear that that's not good enough. But in recent days, they've indicated that the government who have pledged to repeal Section 40 that Labour are not going to undo that. As it happens, I think it's a very, very badly drafted piece of legislation. But the point is, I will be very angry if Labour simply go along with the Tories in dropping it, as opposed to coming up with something that does incentivize newspapers to join up to a genuinely independent regulator. And of course, what they'll do is they will say, it's a threat to the freedom of the press, blah, 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 blah. Utter nonsense. This thing about cost, it's not about oligarchs. It's about the fact that for most people who suddenly get caught up in media intrusion, so-called, quotes ordinary people, the costs can be very, very, very high. So the thinking behind Section 40 was that they wouldn't necessarily have to put themselves at that risk. So if I was traduced by the media, I yeah. could take a case without running the risk that I would bankrupt my family if I lost. Yeah, correct. Correct. But if they'd signed up to the independent regulator, the papers signed up to the independent regulator, they wouldn't be bankrupt either. Presumably because the independent regulator would say, okay, we regulate this newspaper. We think it's fair enough. We'll provide some kind of insurance for both sides for these exactly. kinds of cases. And, and, yeah. and, there'll be, and there'll be some sort of redress. And the reason I worry about this from Labour's perspective, if you, if, you, know, you and I did an event at the Albert Hall last week. And if you remember, one of the, I think, most positively received parts of the stuff that I was saying was when I ran out my idea for how Keir Starmer could campaign about the restoration of standards in public life. And I think, and I, and I really passionately believe that if Labour were to say the Tories have damaged the body politic and we have the responsibility to repair it, I think there'd be massive public support for them to say they're doing it and do it. It'd be a wonderful campaign, wouldn't it? And, and you're right, if you could connect, connect this to it. Well, and, yeah. and also, I'm not saying to Labour, make the press a big part of the campaign. But I am saying, if they think that by going soft on the press now, by sort of quietly dropping this Leveson stuff, they somehow think that if Labour get into government, the press is going to be go easy on them, forget it. On the contrary, what they will think is, ah, we've got them where we want them, we can do what the hell we want. And as soon as Labour's in power, they will turn. And what's more, they will turn. And unless Labour has something in a manifesto 
that says Leveson's not been fully implemented, there have still been excesses, there's still been criminality, we have to find ways of addressing that, then the press will think they won game, set and match. And this all came to to a height, didn't it? Because you, we then had a very strange thing that really troubled people, which is that the Labour shadow minister, Stephanie Peacock, made a series of statements that appeared to reverse the Labour position in, in Parliament in the committee stage, the media bill. Yeah, And she wasn't prepared to support a very modest amendment from the SNP to find an effective alternative incentive to Section 40, which is this thing which we've just been, been talking about. Correct. And I understand why sometimes you don't necessarily want to back an amendment that's put forward by another party and the SNP. You know, we've seen that in lots of cases. But there has to be a replacement of this. I don't think in the end anybody's going to die in a ditch for Section 40 itself because it's not very well drafted and so forth. But in terms of the principles at the heart of it, there has to be something that replaces it. And which the SNP, to be fair to them, you know, this is the first and only time I've ever praised the SNP on this, but I think that amendment was about finding an effective alternative to Section 40. Exactly. And I think George Eustace, who's a, you know, formerly David Cameron's press secretary, went on to be a cabinet minister. I think he's thinking, he's trying to do something as well. But, you know, I, I worry that this is Labour, they sort of, you know, they've got this, let's shrink the target. Okay, so you can, the, the barnacles, get the barnacles off the boat, don't get attacked, which is fine. I understand that. Explain your metaphor. Shrink the target, get the barnacles off the boat. What does what does that mean in practice? Sorry. Well, shrinking the target means give your opponents less to attack you over. Opponents in this case being many of the newspapers. And in this case, don't put out too many policies because if you've got too many policies in public, there's too many bits they can attack. Yeah. Now, where I I get that on one level. However, I sometimes feel that the people running Labour's campaign, I know you think it's me, but this is proof that it's not. (laughs) Um, But the people running Labour's campaign, I think sometimes they think they're doing a lot of the things that we did because we had a strategy to try and neutralize the press, not let Murdoch, you know, run riot, not let any of the papers kind of destroy us. Um, But we also had alongside that, major, major, major campaigns which were being attacked by the press all the time. Minimum wage, New Deal, Section 28 and gay rights, Scottish Parliament. These were being attacked. And what's more, we were welcoming the attacks because that allowed us to ventilate the difference between us and the Tories. What I worry about a strategy where you're saying, let's shrink the target, give them less to attack us on, is that essentially that's what's leading to this problem of people saying, I don't really know what Labour stand for. And so I'm not saying, by the way, put a post-Leverson media strategy at the centrepiece of their campaign. Far from it. I am saying that I think one of Keir Starmer's strengths is that he's he's honest, he's serious, he's Mr. Rule of Law. And that's why I think a campaign on standards would really, really suit him. I think it's really interesting that because you're absolutely right. By attacking you over the Scottish Parliament, by attacking you over gay rights, by attacking you over the minimum wage, it was actually drawing people's attention to stuff that you were proud of. And and it, it is true that we continue to feel that Keir Starmer is overwhelmingly likely to be the next prime minister. But just to remind people that on the net favorability rating, Keir Starmer's net favorability is falling and he's at minus 22%. Now, that's much better than Rishi Sunak, who's at minus 49%. But to put that in context, Blair at this stage was plus 19%. And even Cameron before 2010 was at plus 17%. So there is something for Labour to think about. And if, if, you're, mm. if you're worrying 
as I guess many Labour supporters are, that they're being too complacent. I'm really attracted by your idea that they should be putting out things and having a fight about some things. Yeah, absolutely. And look, if you're this far ahead in the polls, maybe you think you can sort of just, you know, it's going to happen anyway. But some of the things we talked about in the podcast in recent weeks, four out of 10 18 to 24 year olds not registered to vote. The fact that the newspapers are going to, you know, kick hell out of Labour in the run up to the campaign. And this, you know, we had a great example at the weekend of something which I think, not Keir Starmer, I'm not saying he should do this, but somebody from Labour should have been out on the front foot attacking the Tories and the Telegraph at the weekend. They ran a story, front page story, saying that the Tories have prepared a dossier on Keir Starmer about the cases that he did as a lawyer, where he defended terrorists and defended gangsters and defended this, that, and the other. Now, they did the same with Cherie Blair. There's, there's a thing called the, the cab rank principle, where lawyers have to take on cases, right? So what they're going to try to do is basically a smear. They're going to try and say that because he once defended a terrorist in this case or that case. Now, yep. and what's more, the Telegraph, why did they give it to the Telegraph? Because they knew they'd get an easy hit with it. Instead of the Telegraph saying, as they should have done, this is utterly absurd and, and evidence of how desperate the Tories are, they put it on the front page and they got a debate going about it. Somebody from Labour should have been out there, I think, saying this is utterly desperate. It actually further undermines the rule of law and it shows that the Conservative Party are absolutely done, spent force, etc. Instead of which, I feel, there's been, you know, oh God, this probably shows why we have to be a bit nicer to the Telegraph. Now, I've got nothing against Keir Starmer writing The Telegraph, nothing against West Streeting writing The Telegraph. And uh, uh, Fine, do all that. But do not for one minute think that if you go easy on these papers now in the post-Leveson environment, that somehow they're going to be your best mates because they're not. Alistair, thank you. Great first half. I think time for a break. Thank you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. So, Victor Orban. Victor Orban. Well, we, we began with this extraordinary quote from Donald Trump, where he referred to him as one of the strongest leaders in the world, the leader of Turkey. <laughs> but it is part of a much bigger general picture, which is that for Orban, the, the Prime Minister of Hungary, it's absolutely read that what he's doing is waiting for a world in which Trump wins in the United States, in which Putin triumphs in Ukraine, and in which his general vision that he's had for, for decades now, that democracy is failing and that strong men are going to lead the world, will triumph. And of course, there's lots of things that give him confidence in this analysis, because what we can actually see, if you look at the world from the perspective of Viktor Orban, and just as a, if anybody wants a deeper understanding of Victor Orban, you cannot do better than read the extraordinary book by Anne Applebaum that really gets into the depths of the way in which he has undermined the media, the political parties, the judiciary in Hungary and created a sort of one-party state in the middle of the European Union. But his story would be that the old liberal world order of the 90s has crumbled and that all the evidence really since 2014 is that we're now entering a much more anti-democratic age, an age of strongmen. Well, you said it within that that he's always had this this same worldview. But actually, he's, he, if you think of it, his first term as prime minister, so people regular you regularly hear on the media, Orban, who's been prime minister of Hungary since 2010, but he was actually prime minister from 1998 to 2002 as well, and he then had eight years in opposition. And this is a guy who became leader of his party, Fidesz age 30, prime minister for the first time, age 35. And the big thing that he did in his first term was to take Hungary into NATO. So he's not always been this kind of Putin-esque figure. No, I mean, even, even weirder, I think, you know, one of the big things he does is he's got a massive conspiracy theory about George Soros. But I believe that in his younger life, he actually was the beneficiary of a scholarship funded by Soros. He was. He got a scholarship to Pembroke College, Oxford. He did law at a university in Hungary. Then George Soros funded him to go to, or the foundation funded him to go to uh, Pembroke to do political science. And in one of the five election campaigns that he's won, George Soros was the was the figure that he had all over the billboards, and it was it was basically sort of playing into anti-Semitic tropes. He hasn't got a campaign on at the moment. He hasn't got an election. But here's a question for you, Rory. If you went to Hungary today, which political figure would you see on billboards around Hungary put there by Viktor Orban as an enemy? Gosh, I don't know. What's the answer? <laughs> the answer is Ursula von der Leyen. Ah. And, and here's another thing for you. When she comes up for will the, will the European Union, will the council agree to her getting another term, who should be sitting in the chair of the rotating presidency but Hungary Victor Orban. And this is a country of 10 million people. And the reason why we're talking about him today is because in recent days, he first of all surprised some people because he left the room when the other leaders were discussing possible accession to the European Union for Ukraine. Which he was strongly opposed. To. And he had an opportunity to, to veto. veto it. Didn't, and there was a, a strong conversation about whether what was going to happen is that he was going to try to get concessions on the EU budget in exchange for him not vetoing. Is that right? Not vetoing the accession of Ukraine to the EU. Instead of which, what happened was that he had breakfast with Olaf Scholz, Chancellor of Germany, and President Macron of France. We don't have much detail about what happened, but as a result... 
Orban left the room when the decision was taken. He, he nonetheless, since then, has pointed out there will be 70 situations, 70 moments in the process towards accession when any one of the 27 countries will be able to veto. So what happened then was that in, in Kiev and around Ukraine, people were celebrating. The European Union says we can start the process, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then the next day, he did use a veto, and this was to stop financial support for Ukraine by the Europeans in January. Now, I think it will still happen. They'll, fi they'll find a way around that. But it does underline just how much he operates within the European Union, almost like a lone figure, because, of course, he's lost his mates from Poland, Donald Tusk having taken over there. But my God, he knows how to play the power game. And if you go through his elections, so you mentioned Anne Applebaum's book about how he undermines the media, how he's undermines the judiciary, and he completely changed the electoral system. So that in, in, in his second round, he ended up <laughs> with almost more than two thirds of the seats in parliament, having got 44% of the vote by changing the system. And that meant you could change the constitution. And, and he's been stopped at some point. He, he's, he's also, some people think he's a bit of a kleptocrat, that there's a sort of quite a big oligarchical thing going on, very anti-LGBT. And he poses, we talked to him, if you remember when we interviewed Tom Holland that's coming out on Christmas Day, and we were talking about Christianity and politics, he projects his politics very much as the defense of Christianity against other forces. Yes, he sometimes calls himself the ideological center of the international conservative movement, um, which means that a lot of the things that we've been talking about, which are the sort of family of beliefs or views which the right is propagating across Europe, of which, of course, the, the biggest and most central is uh, immigration, which we, we, which we must talk about in the, in the UK context as well. But he's also links this to LGBTQ issues. So he, mm -hmm. he's tried to drive through some very restrictive laws on LGBTQ and accuse the European Union for basically being a front for the promotion of, of LGBTQ rights. Also connected with this, of course, is concerns about uh, measures on climate change. Others, they tend to be climate skeptics. And they also increasingly are gesturing that they are not sympathetic towards continuing to fund Ukraine against Russia. Yeah. But at, at the heart of this is very old-fashioned 19th century nationalism. So a couple of quotes from Orban. He says, this is 2018, we must state that we do not want to be diverse. We do not want to be mixed. We do not want our own color, traditions, and national culture to be mixed with those of others. We do not want this. We do not want that at all. We do not want to be a diverse country. Mm. And then he said, we Hungarians are not a mixed race, and we do not want to become a mixed race. And he's quite, he's quite fond of promoting the so-called Great Replacement Theory. Just tell us what the Great Replacement Theory is. Well, essentially that, you know, people like him, white Christians, uh, are going to be re replaced by people of color. Um, in terms of power and wealth and all the rest of it. Because of immigration. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and birth rates, yeah. I'm trying to think if there was anything like him. Well, the person I think that we have been talking about, I think that we should keep an eye on who's watching this very carefully, is Vucic in Serbia. And Vucic, of course, is somebody that you know because you were dealing with Vucic back in 1999. Just give us a quick, quick reminder of, of Vucic and your connection with him before we get on to why Vucic is echoing Orban. Well, I, I wasn't dealing with him other than the fact that we were opposite numbers. He was in charge of Milosevic's media machine, and I was helping NATO run theirs during the 
the the Kosovo War. And I've met him subsequently. I met him in um, through the work that I do in the in, in the Balkans. And this election, so we're, we're speaking on Monday. The election in Serbia was yesterday. They've had five general elections since 2012. They've had three in the last three years. And essentially, he calls elections because he's also got great control of the media, because he's also become very, very powerful over all the institutions of the state. He calls elections because he can use them to kind of, you know, drive his message. And he's ended up so far, look, he's got 46.6% of the votes. And similar to, to Orban, that could give him an absolute majority, which now he'll probably do some sort of deal with some of the smaller parties. But, you know, we the last time I think we talked about Serbia was after they'd had those terrible killings. And it led to the formation of a new alliance called Serbia Against Violence on the center left. They've ended up with just 23%. They're going to get 63 seats. Where he might not get away with things as much as he wants is in, they've also got local elections in Belgrade, municipal elections. And it looks like his party, the Serbian Progressive Party, is winning there, but not by nearly as much. And by the way, what's really interesting about this election, Rory, he wasn't even a candidate. This was not a presidential election. This was a general election, which he was the main figure. So President Vucic, really worth looking at because he is absolutely increasingly sympathetic towards the sort of Orban vision of the future of the world. There's a link to an interview that he gave. If you get a chance to watch it, he's sitting there in an amazing, um, what I can only describe as a, a lilac tweed jacket, sitting there sounding very, very calm and patient. But all the way through, even if you, obviously most of our listeners don't speak Serbian, and my Serbian is very rusty, but he keeps saying, Chekati, Chekati, wait, wait. And what he's saying is, that we need to learn, or the Serbs need to learn, from what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh. He's learned from Azerbaijan. He said Aliyev, president, and his son in Azerbaijan waited for 27 years for the special geopolitical crisis that allowed them to take back Nagorno-Karabakh. So listeners will remember, a few months ago, this thing which in the 1990s was resolved with a small Armenian settlement in the center of, of uh, Azerbaijani territory, Essentially, there was an invasion beginning this year, and neither the US or Russia nor the United Nations or anybody did anything to prevent eventually Azerbaijan overrunning it and kicking out the Armenian population. And this is relevant for him because he is thinking particularly about how northern Kosovo, the Serbian bit of northern Kosovo, is going to come back to Serbia and how Republika Srpska, Republika Srpska is the Serbian part of Bosnia Herzegovina. So, listeners will remember that. During the conflicts in the mid-1990s, within Bosnia in particular, Croats, Serbs, and Bosniaks, the Bosniaks being the Muslim population, were fighting. That war came to an end, 94-95, in a settlement in which the Serbs were left with a chunk of the territory called mm. Republika Srpska, where about 80% of the population are Serbs. And that was, in some ways, one of the great triumphs of the 1990s. I mean, it was mm. the US and Britain and the European Union ending a war where 37,000 people had been killed in Sarajevo. The war criminals were arrested, the checkpoints were removed, the crime rate was lower than Sweden. And now, you know, decades later, we have Vucic strongly signaling that he wants to get it back. And, and we're hearing this also from the leader of Republika Srpska, who's also yeah. strongly hinting that reunification will happen. And these strange phrases are now coming out. If you hear them, they will also say, this is one of the reasons we keep encouraging listeners to try to look at what's happening in the local press. They have these same strangers about, we are the victims of a conspiracy of the American Democratic Party, mm. because it was Bill Clinton 
that imposed this. So this is all part of the sort of worrying sense of the world order slowly unraveling. And the geopolitical conditions he's waiting for, in particular, are Trump winning and Putin triumphing in Ukraine. Over to you. Well, it's interesting because the other thing that connects Orban and Vukic, at different times they've indicated, I mean, at the moment, I think you're right in saying that they're both very much pointing towards the sort of populist right and on foreign policy, pretty sympathetic to, to Russia and China. Wasn't always necessarily so. There have been moments where it looked like they were possibly thinking of pivoting the other way. But I don't know whether it's the same interview, but somebody sent me uh, an, an account of an, an interview he did where he mocked all the other Western Balkan countries for aligning with the EU. He was very mocking of the West. He was almost laughing as he was saying, you know, and they tried to prevent this human, human catastrophe in Kosovo during the Milosevic regime. And he said that, this is a quote translated, now everyone understands that they cannot defeat Russia militarily. This changes everything. And that was a pretty kind of straightforward, you know, as you say, the geopolitics of the world are changing and I'm kind of, I know which side I'm going to be on. And there's, there's also a, an interesting character here to get a sense of the, you know, we, we've talked about this in relation to Israel, that it's important to understand governments partly through some of the more extreme members. So we've talked uh, in Israel about the importance of understanding Ben Gavir and Smotrich mm. in understanding the way in which Israel is thinking about Palestinian rights. In the case of understanding Serbia, it's important to understand characters like Alexander Vulin, who was the Minister of Labor, then Defense, then the Minister of Interior, then the head of the intelligence agencies, who's just sent in his resignation letter. But in it, you get the full-throated Serbian thing. You know, These people are trying to make us apologize to Croats, to accept the Srebrenica massacre. They're trying to force us to sanction Russia and expel Chinese investments and reject our family values. And again, this is the, mm. the Orban stuff. Um, and he talks about our brotherhood with Russia and China, uh, that Serbia is the last free leader in Europe. Now, th this then brings the big geopolitical question, which is, is it possible to re-energize the movement? Paradoxically, it sounds a bit contradictory to say it, but to actually get Serbia, Kosovo, and the other Western Balkan countries into the European Union. Which for them is a stated policy objective, yet at the same time, for example, the Prime Minister, uh, I don't know, I never know how to pronounce her name because it's got three consonants at the start, B-R-N-A-B-I-C, Branovic. She recently said that Serbia will not comply with the parts of the agreement that were brokered by the EU in relation to, to Kosovo. And that they will never accept a de facto or de jure recognition of Kosovo. And the other thing we've talked about in the past, which is this whole issue of number plates, they've, they've now reached the point, and this is the issue where there are f around 50,000 Serbs, many of whom have cars, where they refuse to have Kosovan number plates. They insist on Serb number plates. Kosovo has insisted the Serb number plates have got to go. They've given them time for the transition, and the time has now run out. So technically in law now, the Kosovan police could arrest and fine and even confiscate the cars of Serbs. Now, that will kick off all sorts of stuff if we're not careful. This sounds like a petty issue, but of course, it's Huge. central to discussions about nationhood. Because effectively, from the point of view of the Kosovo government, these Serbs in northern Kosovo are behaving as separatists, behaving as though they lived in Serbia. So I suppose the equivalent in Northern Ireland would be if back in the day when this was very raw, 
uh, nationalists in Northern Ireland were insisting on going around with Republic of Ireland license plates on their cars. And it feels like a tiny issue, but in fact, it's symbolically unbelievably important. And it's led to violence in the past. It's led to violence in the past. One, one maybe final point on on this election is that, you know, like Orban, he's been in power for quite a long time now. Quite a few accusations of ballot rigging this time, busing of voters in from Bosnia Herzegovina to vote in in Belgrade, uh, intimidation of monitors, falsifying of signatures. Now these are accusations, all of which are pretty widely reported in in much of the media. But of course, you know, as far as he's concerned, he's got 46.6% of the vote. I've won, you've lost, suck it up, on we move. And it is quite amazing to be a winning prime minister who keeps holding elections. Yeah. We're a country which has different prime ministers without (laughs) elections. I think the, the big picture reminder here is that we became, I guess, during the Cold War, used to something quite unusual in Europe, which was from 1945 to the early 90s, these borders in Europe, which of course had moved a great deal, First World War, Second World War, huge movements, you know, that what is the border of Poland? What is the border of Hungary? What's the border of Romania? These were very contested things that particularly sparked the First World War. But we were used to those borders being controlled and frozen. And that was very, very important. I mean, that's basically what the United Nations existed to do protect these sovereign borders. And states, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, this is hugely important to them because because these borders are often artificial, straight lines on maps and groups cross those borders. It's been unbelievably important to hold those borders. And and that's why when there was a Biafran rebellion in Nigeria, it was extremely important to Nigeria to argue that they needed to keep the borders of Nigeria intact. Now, this we were complacent about. It broke in the Balkans in the 1990s, and it seemed as though we'd found a resolution for it. It was a time of huge US confidence. And under the John Major and Tony Blair government in Bosnia and Kosovo, the West intervened and settlements were found. And we assumed, I guess, moving on from 2000, that that was pretty permanent, that that problem was dealt with. We are now entering a world where if you look at Putin taking Crimea, Putin having effectively annexed now eastern Ukraine, Nagorno-Karabakh now having been taken back without anyone really noticing, we're entering a world in which it's becoming much, much more likely that Serbia would attempt to retake northern Kosovo, would Mm. attempt even possibly to reintegrate Republic of Srpska, that Putin, if he really feels that he can act with impunity in eastern Ukraine might have a go at the Baltic. And that's a much, much more dangerous Mm. world. You mentioned how lots of these populist right-wing leaders are waiting for Trump and Putin, of course, number one waiting for Trump. Fiona and I watched The Crown last night. and um, Oh dear, we don't like that. Well, (laughs) but it was was the, we're into the Blair era and we're into Kosovo. And the, the narrative basically, Rory, is that the Queen's very jealous of Tony Blair's popularity, but she sees that Tony Blair seems able to get the American president to do things that otherwise he wouldn't do. So the story is Kosovo, and it's overdone, but I don't think Donald, a Donald Trump America would go anywhere near a war in the Balkans. No, no. And, and, and the, very, the tragic thing is if you s- see the way that people reacted to Nagorno-Karabakh, or basically the way they reacted to Crimea in 2014, or didn't react, I wonder how much outcry, tragically, there really would be. If Serbia tried to take northern Kosovo, unless we really put it on the agenda now. Yeah, yeah. Well, there we are. Um, that's all for this week. I shall see you very soon. I should just say to our listeners, leading this week, new guest on there, out now, 
Tim Peake, the astronaut, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Amazing uh, insight into space travel. Please listen. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.